Hey, this is Frank Hannon. I'm the lead guitarist of Tesla, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. And Richie. Once again, via Skype, because uh, COVID sucks. And uh, as promised last week, we are going to be rolling Richie's awesome interview with the legendary Y&T founder, Dave Manichetti. Super psyched to be bringing this one. Yeah, definitely. Been a fan of his for ever. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and you can tell, too, because... uh, it's like how how often do we actually like do a chat before an episode because we're psyched about having a certain person on? Mm, mm. Can you think of a singer guitar player, lead guitar player, as good as him? I can't. jeez, uh, uh, I don't know. It's kind of putting me on the lead spot guitar. here. A lead guitar player now and a guy with a voice like that who's still as good because he's still a really, really good singer. Oh, he is. He's lost nothing. He, I was actually having this conversation um, this weekend with somebody when we were talking. I was talking about, you know, vocalists that were great but have like lost it along the way and saying that, you know, Dave is one of these guys that, for one, he never, he didn't sing from his throat. He was singing, you know, from down in his lungs. He was, you know, using his diaphragm and all that. So he's still has that range and and he always sang in like a key that was right for him as well so uh definitely that and it's interesting too because really i mean his whole focus at the beginning was was guitar you know yeah yeah but he, what he has as well is he has an identifiable voice oh, yeah definitely there's, definitely there's some singers that have an identifiable voice but you you mightn't say that they're the best singers ever but you know it's them i'll throw another one out there I can hear Blackie Lawless and within, you know, two or three words, I know it's him. Um, or someone like Coverdale. I think Manic Eddie has that voice as well, that you just know it's Dave. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's always been identifiable and stuff. I mean, that's why they probably only let Leonard sing one song, ever. Mm. You, must <laughs> like him. You, must, you must like him as well, because uh, he's a Les Paul guy. Yeah, yeah. Even though, you know, some of the lately and some of the latter years, he kind of went away from Les Paul a little bit, which I can understand because you play a whole show with with one of those around you. It, after a while, it starts to to really tear your shoulder up. But yeah, he, he's always been all the way through, even when Les Pauls weren't popular, you know, when everyone thinks about, oh, you know, Slash brought him back or whatever. But Dave never stopped playing him. Mm-hmm. Are they heavy guitar to to hold? Is oh, that yeah, way, is that yeah. I'll, I'll have you hold mine one time. I'll have you hold the a regular the regular one, and I'll have have you hold the chambered one, and you'll be like, "Oh my god!" Like to have this on your neck like all night. Yeah, they're they're a heavy guitar. Right. I'm, I'm going to get a little bit technical here. Then, why are they so heavy? It's just the um, because most primarily they're all they're made of mahogany. So it's mahogany, it's like, you know, mine are typically mahogany with a maple top, and the mahogany is just a heavy wood. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and then gotcha. just also the way that it sits, too, because, you know, a Strat has, uh, has the horns on it as well, and part of the reason for those horns is not just aesthetics, is the horns help to get take a balance. So what happens is 
that that the way that the a weight of a strat aligns to your body is different than a Les Paul. So a Les Paul really like hangs almost directly down off your shoulder as opposed to a, a, a strat where it kind of hangs crosswise across you and it actually distributes the weight a little bit differently. Okay. All right. You lost me there about a minute and a half ago. <laughs> That's all right. Like I said, I'll, I'll put, I'll put one of my strats on you too. And then you'll be, you'll be like, okay, I get it now. I, un- I understand the difference, but yeah, it does make a difference. Okay. All right. And they're expensive too, aren't they? Is that why they're expensive? Because they're made of mahogany? Um, no, it's typically because of just the um, a lot of the handwork and stuff that gets done on those. I mean, Les Pauls typically. I mean, now you can use a machine, but um, you know, it, it's because it's got a, a, the carved top on there as well. Where a strat, you can do a lot of a strat, and that's the way the, the way that Leo made it was a strat could be just made really quickly and easily with your standard woodworking tools. So you had a slab body, you know, just like a Telecaster and stuff, and. You could route, you know, roundovers on the edges and stuff, and it was easy to do a belly carve. Where a Les Paul, you're going to have multiple pieces of wood making a sandwich with the mahogany and the maple on the top, and then how you carve that top, and then the set neck as well. So that whole neck joint as well, as opposed to having a, a bolt-on neck. So that, mm. that all of that kind of really makes it a, a much more expensive guitar. Mm. Well, if they're that heavy, my admiration went up for them again, because the two-and-a-half-hour show I saw him play... He played the Les Paul for two and a half hours. Mm, yeah, yeah, they're heavy. <laughs> and sing, and he sang. <laughs> so no wonder he wanted a stiff drink when he was done. Yeah, I wouldn't blame him. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. Uh, they, they can, they can, uh, they can weigh you down. Yeah. Do you, so do you think Y&T will ever make a new record? Um. Face Melter is 10 years old, I think. Yeah, you know what, though? I, I think they will. I think they will. I mean, they've got the lineup that's been there for a little bit now. And um, I think that Dave is just, you know, was saying, okay, is this really just a band that's going out and we're playing some shows and we're having fun? Or, you know, do you do you finally develop a, a, a kinship enough to, to actually decide to want to, you know, make songs? Because you can be, you know, I've, I've had that experience of, of being in a band where you, you can have fun playing with people, but you just never develop that spark that all of a sudden says like, oh, crap, I'm writing songs now. And, um, you know, I think he's getting to that point with uh, with John and stuff. And I think he also needed to probably, you know, properly grieve Phil and kind of get over that whole thing, too, I think, which is huge. And, and you know, now, you know, the fact that, that uh, you know, Joey's gone as well. Leonard's gone now. And, and I'm sure that that all kind of weighs on him, that he's kind of like the, the last guy standing. And I'm sure a lot of that kind of ties into your whole songwriting muse and your, you know, your want or your need to do it. But I would not doubt uh, Y&T putting out another album. And probably, you know, as, as a low-key release as Face Melter was. Just, well, some of the other albums that happened, um, you know, in other territories as well that really didn't get promoted. I think it's just for the love of just like writing some new songs. I don't think they're going to release a new album personally. No, I I just, I think 10 years has been too long now. I think they're happy where they are. Um, I've never really heard Dave say that they wanted to record a new record. I know they've released some live stuff here and there. And I think they had like an acoustic album Mm -hmm. a year or two ago, but as regards writing new music, my personal feeling is I don't think they're gonna do they're gonna do any new music. Hmm. Um, I'd love it. 
I don't get me wrong. I'd love him to. I'd love Dave to write some stuff and with with the guys, but I'd be very surprised at this stage. I think if um if they came out with a new record because uh, th- there's no money in it either. No, you know, and that's all- why I think it would be a very low key something they'd probably like do off of their website and all that, and you know sell at the shows things like that. He's got his home studio. I don't think it would take a ton of of. Uh, cash outlay to be able to do it either i don't think it would be something they'd push on a major or try to get big promotion they'd be you know probably using folks like us to promote it and things like that i don't think it would be a huge like push out uh i just i'm just i don't know my my gut just says that they you know he'll do something well the other reason i want him to do a new album is um i don't want to be the last new thing i've heard from dave manichetti be the guitar solo on frequency unknown <laughs> because <laughs> he, he did play on that mm. <laughs> all right so what do you say when i want to roll this uh this great chat you had with him yeah sure go ahead all right so uh we're just gonna roll that and i hope everybody enjoys it out there Hey, hey Davis, Richie here. How are you doing? Doing well. So the reason I have you on, and I've only got 30 minutes, um, is 30 years since the 10 record was released. And um, I want to go in depth a little bit on that. Um, what, sure. What's your memory like at that time period in general? Is it pretty good? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was an interesting time for us because we were, we were given basically the opportunity to spend as much time as we wanted to get the songs ready for that record. And uh, as it turned out, it was basically almost like two years or a year and a half or whatever it was, which is pretty much unheard of at that time for us because we were always having to turn uh, records around within a year uh, of, of the release of the previous one. So um, it, it was it was a good time for us as far as having a lot of time to hang out in the, in the rehearsal studio and, and write. And uh, we're coming up with so many ideas. In fact, we had so many ideas for that record that when we decided to do this unreleased uh, CD set that we came up with, uh, <laughs> we almost were able to fill an entire CD with songs we wrote for the 10 record that we en- ended up never using. 
So uh, we've probably written something like 25 or 30 songs for that record at the end of the day. It was a good time, but it was also semi-frustrating because we had already had issues with, uh, with all the record companies that we've ever been signed under um, as far as whether or not we were with the right company at that particular moment in time. Now, Geffen was killing it at that time for, for our style of music, so we knew we were on the right style of record company. Uh, it was just a matter of could we get any kind of attention from them mm. um, because, because they were really, really in the midst of uh, the latest White Snake stuff, um, uh, Aerosmith uh, being back on the label, and of course Guns N' Roses just recently having come out for their first uh, and second releases at that time. So um, we had a lot of competition, and whether or not we were going to get anywhere with them <laughs> on, on release 10 was yet to have been seen at that time. Mm. Now, you had a lineup change. Joey was gone, and you got in Steph Burns. Um, how how did you find Steph? Steph was found actually from our uh, manager at the time. Uh, Scott was uh, managing was managing us all along for probably many years at that point, but um, he had this other band that he was helping out, and Steph was in that band, and it was kind of like a journey, semi journey cover kind of not cover, but I mean that that style of band. Um, and in fact, the jury's bass player was in that band. And, um, and so he knew about this guitar player stuff. And, and, and as soon as we had decided that we were going to let Joey go, he said, I already have the guy. I'm telling you, he's, he, you can love him. And I had never even met him at that time. But, uh, uh, you know, when he came in and rehearsed with us one day, we were all like, yep, you're right. <laughs> this is the guy. Mm. So it was that D- Dave, what songs did he play in an audition? Or did he even play any of your songs? Oh, God. I, God that, that I would never remember. <laughs> that, yeah. that's, a t- that's a tough question. I, that's a good question, but I don't remember what, what we would have uh, used as, as basic songs for him to learn. And, uh, but I'm, I, I know he nailed whatever it was. And, and funny, uh, many years after that, uh, when we were on the road, I mean, many years later, uh, in the 2000s, and of course he was no longer in the band, and, and John's been in the band for, for over a decade, uh, John needed to fly home because uh, his mother uh, was on, on her last days in the hospital, and he had found that out while we were in Europe. And uh, it just so happened that we only had one more show left before we were coming home. And uh, that was in Italy. And Steph just happened to be in Italy because he's been playing with this super popular um, rock artist in Italy. And so he learned every single song within one day of a 20-song set. So that just goes to show you how easy it was for him to, to just to come up with songs. So it was, if we would have given him five or six songs on audition that day, he probably would have nailed them, you know, <laughs> five five minutes before he came down, you know. He's just one of those kind of players. Yeah. Did you audition any other guitar players or was it just Steph? No, that was it. That was all we needed because, uh, you know, like I said, our manager was pushing for Steph. And uh, we were in the middle of just being 
um, well, we were still we were still writing, so um, it was it was a time when we weren't really focused on thinking about oh God, who can we get to to audition? And at that time, had we you know put some focus into it. We probably would have remembered. Oh my God, John Nyman, our friend, yeah. and John. John may have been in the band back in 1989. You know, so, uh, but but we never even gave it a slot because we were so focused on songwriting at that time. And then, of course, this whole thing about letting our friend go after so many years of being in the band. It was it was just kind of a, a weird. Uh, psyche that, that everybody was going through at the time. We were sort of depressed about that, and at the same time, you know, focused on trying to finish writing for this record. So mm. we kind of gave our our uh, our manager full use of of his idea of bringing in somebody, so that we didn't have to think about it for the moment, and we could keep going on with our writing. Mm. Now, Dave, you did two records with Kevin Beamish. Um, did you want to work with Kevin on the 10 record or was there just, you just did, weren't given that option? Well, we liked what he did with us, uh, with the contagious record. And, um, and of course we had our biggest single ever with, uh, summertime girls with him, uh, you know, producing and, and engineering that. So we felt pretty confident about going in, um, with him, but uh, that wasn't going to happen. And and actually, it was kind of a plus and minus thing. I mean, you know, some of us were into Kevin and some of us weren't because because we also had him do uh, Down for the Count record, and that was a very, um, I have to say that record had a lot of issues. Um, We we had issues with the record company big time at that point because they were really putting their thumb on us and uh, that's one of the reasons why we left A&M and uh, and also a lot of the guys were not liking what he was doing with the mixes for that record they felt that it was too soupy meaning there was too much reverb on everything and that it wasn't rock sounding enough and, and, and he was trying to make it more pop mixed and so on and so forth and and so there were there were reasons why we weren't going to go with him for the 10 record. In fact, um, what a lot of people don't know, and certainly it's been out there, it's not a secret, but um, they may not remember, but Ronnie Montrose was our original producer for the 10 record. And uh, and Ronnie had worked with us for about six months, uh, coming down to the rehearsal studio every day and writing with us and, and producing some of the songs that we were coming up with and you know, pre-producing, I should say, and uh, we did a couple of demo tapes with him for that record, and no one was real impressed with the end result for some reason, and uh, and and so we just decided to part ways as far as him being the producer, and that caused all kinds of flack with Ronnie and me personally. Uh, he wouldn't answer my phone calls and it got real weird for, for many years. Uh, we didn't talk. And, um, but that, we sorted all that out many years later. But anyway, uh, so, so we had a change of producer while we were writing for that record. And that's when, um, John Kalodner, who was our A&R person at Geffen had, uh, suggested that we, 
try out uh, this other producer. <laughs> so he brought Mike Stone down to our rehearsal studio to uh, to talk to us about uh, producing the record. Mm. And that's how that kind of all turned around. He wasn't our original first person that was going to do this. Mm. Dave, Dave, at that stage in your career, you've done a lot of records. What did you need from a producer? Well, I guess we just wanted somebody that was going to come in and, from my perspective, what I would have wanted is someone that really had fantastic ideas so that even though that we knew what we wanted to do with our music, that it was just going to be that little bit of an edge where they could see something and go, hey, you know, we ought to try, you know, moving this part to here, or maybe, you know, in production, we'll, you know, what do you think about adding this kind of a guitar part here or something like that? You know, someone that would give us some musical direction beyond what we already had for ourselves. And, uh, and also we were looking for somebody that was going to give us a modern mix because we felt that on a lot of our records, our, our, our mixes didn't, didn't exactly come up to this, you know, what we wanted out of it. And so that was what I wanted out of, out of that producer. Uh, somebody that was very musical was going to add a little bit to our already well-produced, uh, you know, songwriting and uh, and go through every single last bit for, with, with the rhythm section, making sure all the parts are right before we go in. And um, unfortunately, as it turned out, Mike Stone was going through some issues at that time. He had drug problems, and uh, in fact, he had just got fired from the Rat record previous to him working with us, which was not a great thing to start out with. So he was basically on a on a plan of you know off off of drugs, and so first time off of drugs for him in many years, and uh, that meant that he kind of sat there like a bump on a log a lot of the time when we were doing when we were doing the record, and we ended up uh, you know getting more from our engineer rather than him, and our engineer was Tom Size who ended up becoming our sound man after after that. Hmm. Dave, who was it the producer or was it John Kalodner who was suggesting the outside songwriters? It was John Kalodner. And how did how did you feel at the time about that? Uh we weren't real happy about it. Um we felt like you know he had given us the proper more than enough time to write fantastic songs for the record we knew that we had plenty of great material and uh and i just thought that it wasn't needed and so and and you know the good thing was at least different from in rock we trust when we had worked with the same fellow um you know he he came in for the entire record for in rock we trust uh and and sat there and and we wrote, wrote songs together and this is i'm talking about jeff lee but um on this particular record, actually, Jeff only came in for uh, two songs that he had uh, and uh, that, that he had either written completely or was, was co-writing with us. And so it was just two out of, like, like I said, 25 or so songs that we had written. So 
he wasn't actually hanging out with us in the rehearsal studio or, or doing a lot of writing. He just more or less came in while we were, uh, you know, in pre-production and said, look, well, I've got these couple of song ideas I think that might be good for you guys. And uh, so it was more just like uh, outside songs with the songwriter coming with it to to help out with the production of those songs when we got to, to that on the record. Yeah, Dave, I remember I interviewed Jimmy DeGrasso a couple of years ago, and when I spoke about this record with him, he said that, you, you were trying out the songs live beforehand to try and gauge the crowd reaction to them. How true yeah. was that? Well, that's true. That is true. And there, there was, uh, I, I remember that we did this at a, a, a venue in Oakland and because uh, we didn't have that much time to play live shows while we were doing, while we were doing the songwriting, we didn't want to interrupt our songwriting through by, you know, going out and doing a, a small tour or anything like that. So we would just do a couple of spotty shows here and there. And I remember in particular this one place in Oakland that was a real popular place for, for her style of music at that time. And we would just pack the place. And, and that's when we had the opportunity to try out like four or five of our brand new songs on the, on the crowd and see, see how they were coming off. How do you gauge a crowd reaction to a new song? Because they've never heard it. Like it, it's it's not probably not going to go down as well as as your other songs on the other albums. So how do you know whether it's it's gone down well or not? Well, we gauged it in two different ways. We could tell based on just our experience of trying out new songs on crowds before. You know how you know just as you were saying, you're never going to get the the amazing response, uh, but based on the response we were getting for certain songs and also how it felt to play live. Because uh, that's another thing. Uh, there, there's a certain magic to certain songs for, for a live perspective. You know, when, when you're playing them, you just have this feeling where, you know, you can almost look at the other guys in the band and get the vibe from them as well. Like, wow, this is a really cool tune to play live. You know, and, and some of the songs that we sat in the, in the rehearsal studio and wrote together and put down on, on demo tapes and things like that. They were great songs and they came out great on tape or on, you know, whatever we were using at that time. But maybe they were just, you know, not, they, they weren't exactly brilliant when you played them live. You know, maybe they needed more time to, to really uh, become a better live song. But certain songs just just are the ones you know you know it when you play it live and and to some degree i think that's why you get a certain better reaction from those particular songs when you play them for the first time mm. for your fan for your fan base because they can tell that you're getting off on it and that it's got a certain feel to it that is it's like okay we don't know this song well but man that was kind of cool you know that type of thing dave i'm going to really pick your brain now i need a songs on 10 you remember i need them that you were you were playing live and they went over really well. What's that? It was one? Yeah. Oh, okay. You remember? I, I, yeah, I remember that Surrender went over really well. And uh, let me think. Let me think what else might be. Um, yeah, you weren't picking my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm thinking hard times because that was the opening track. And I know the demo is very different to the, the finished song on the album. Yeah, you know what? I'll I, I'll bet you that we did not play Hard Times Live. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's possible we did, but um, 
did we really do that live? I'm not 100% sure if we did. I think we probably played, well, like I said, I absolutely know that we played Surrender, and that was one of the ones that really came off. Um, I'm going to say we probably played um, City and maybe... Maybe we did play Hard Times, and uh, and maybe Lucy. I, I think those might be the ones that we played live. Not a hundred percent certain because, of course, I, I'd have to I'd have to try and find that set list back in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, <laughs> somebody's did, got it. Dave, how did Al Petrelli get a call right on City? Ah, uh, that is that's because that song City was. Uh, co-written by our drummer Jimmy DeGrasso and Jimmy had that idea if I'm not mistaken with uh, with Al Petrelli originally and then we ended up rewriting it and uh, because he was in a band with Al Petrelli uh, before he was in Y&T so uh, it was kind of like hey man you know just have I get I can't remember now how in, involved Al was what whether he actually came out or whether uh, we he, it was he was just a co songwriter on that record uh, and we I don't think he actually came out okay. <laughs> I think it was just more, more that it was you know a song that uh, maybe that Jimmy had started writing with Al and then we ended up uh, finishing it mm. now there's two songs on this written by Phil alone. Um, when yep. he when he brought the songs to the band, were they fully formed with lyrics and melodies already, or were you able to add your flavor on top of it? Well, when when Phil would write a song all by himself, he would toil over it for months and months and months. I mean, you know, Phil was a, a perfectionist with, with his own, you know, individual song, and. We were all perfectionists when, when we would write together, but Phil had this certain thing about whenever he'd write a song in, in its entirety, um, that when he would bring it into the band, he just he didn't want the band to mess with it, you know, at first. He, he wanted everybody to learn it as he had it in his head. And I totally understand where he was coming from. So, so in one particular song, Ten Lovers, he, there was no way we were going to put anything different in on that song. That he was militant about it's going to be played exactly like this, and and no, we got to do it this way. And and we were all 100 percent behind. It. That was the problem. It was it was a difficult song to learn because every single time it came around, another you know 16 bars, it was it was similar but not the same as the previous bars, you know, for, for so like the second verse wasn't the same as the first and the next verse was totally different and, and even the you know, the way we approached, you know, coming up to the choruses was different and so on and so forth. So yeah, he was mostly about uh doing things the way that he had it in his head. And uh but because he and I had been the principal songwriters for so long and had this certain flow between us Sometimes, even if he didn't want to go outside of his ideas when he wrote something completely extraordinary to finish, uh, he would maybe let me throw a little something extra in, and and he might end up going, yeah, I kind of like that better. That's good. So Okay. Now, Steph has only one call right on it, Come In From The Rain. Uh, what did he add to that song? Hmm. Let me think. To think back about what it was that, that, that what party came up with there. 
Hmm. It's an amazing song. Oh, it is. It's a great tune. Um, I don't really remember. <laughs> I don't remember what part he may have come up with. Uh, could have been maybe the intro bit or something like that. Because um, mostly I wrote that song myself. Uh, I lyrically and uh, an almost entire music for that song was written by me. Hmm. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> most most of these things I can, but does that one in particular? I, I'm that I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure. Well, here's an easy question for you, Dave. Um, how come Jimmy DeGrasso didn't play on the whole record? <laughs> I knew you'd tend to that one. That's that's that was a real strange one, boy. Um, well, we had uh, like I said, we had spent so much time writing for this record, and we did demo tapes at, at my place. At my, just at my house. I didn't even have a recording studio built at that time in my house. Well, yes, I did. We was no, I didn't. No, I didn't. And and so we did. We did a lot of the demos in my garage, and uh, and then I would finish them up in my bedroom where I had a little uh, you know spare bedroom with with a little recording studio set up. And so every single one of those tunes was fully done on a 16 track uh, tape deck that I had. And uh, and sounded really actually pretty damn good. I mixed them and and we we did good versions of everything and we used those versions as the basis for how we were going to record these things. And uh, and and of course even Mike Stone went off of those uh, demo tapes and all that kind of stuff. Well, as it turned out, you know, like every single song, of course, Jimmy was playing on. He's in the band. When we got to the recording studio for the first two weeks. Of, of of doing all the basic tracks for this, we spent oh better better part of two two and a half weeks almost. Uh, it was a really long time uh, to get the the basic tracks. So we spent a lot of money in the studio. The studio was a very expensive studio, and um, we took a break after we got all the all the uh, all of the basic tracks, meaning bass and drums mainly, uh, got them done. And we took a couple of days off and said, okay, we'll be back in the studio in a few days. Let's clear our heads, come back fresh, and we'll start on the next things, which is guitar overdubs and vocals and all that kind of stuff. Well, I walked in the studio that next Monday, and uh, our manager's there. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, Mike Stone's there. Tom Size is there, our, our, our engineer, the second engineer. And I walk in, and they all turn towards me with these grim faces and I'm like, what's going on? You know, and they're sitting at the board, you know, having been listening to tracks, I guess, before I got there. And, uh, and they said, uh, we've got a problem. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, the drum tracks are, are, are not up to par. They're, they're, they're rushing or they're slowing down. The grooves are not there. All this kind of stuff. I go, what do you mean? I thought we just spent the last couple of weeks coming up with these thinking these are good, you know, and uh, and so they started playing back examples from, from some of the songs. And, of course, it was real obvious when you're sitting there just listening only to the drums uh, that, that, you know, things were not were not grooving or, or they were the, the, the tempos were, were moving around a bit or any number of things. And Mike Stone was being super adamant and saying, these are not good enough. 
let's let's bring in let's bring in uh you know another drummer to to do these tracks and 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 i'm like you know by this time phil has has arrived and phil and i are like no this is not this is this is not some hollywood band where you bring in you know what other kind of players you want I go, this is, this is a band. This is a real band. This is the four of us. We're not going to replace our drummer on a, on a, on a record. And, and so, so we argued about it and we said, look, why don't we do this? Why don't we let Jimmy come in here, listen to these tracks and give him another shot at it. And, and, uh, if, if you want him to play with a, uh, you know, with, with a, uh, a metronome or something, you know, a click track, uh, let him spend some time and, and think about what he's going to do. And then we'll come in and we'll give him a couple of days. And if he, and, and basically this was their thing, we'll give him a couple of days. And if he isn't nailing it in a, in a couple of days, then we, then we call in Steve Smith and, uh, and, and we have him. Do it. And so, you know, we didn't want to do this, but, John Kalogner's on the phone saying, you guys have already spent $30,000 of our budget and we don't even <laughs> have any tracks yet. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and Mike Stone was being right there going, that's right. That, this is bullshit. And so it was a, it was a tough time. That was, that was really tough. So we did go, give him the time. He did come back in. Now, of course, at this point, Jimmy's freaked out yeah, because yeah. he knows because he knows that he is already having problems with Mike Stone, which is why he was probably not nailing these tracks in the first place. Because, like I said, Mike was giving nothing back. He was just sitting there like a bump on a log, not giving any kind of input. You know, but at least not enough to where we wanted it to. And uh, and and so it, it was just you know he wasn't saying anything, but then later he is saying something that he doesn't like, and it's like he should have said something at the time, you know. And, and we could maybe work to fix it at that moment. That, that was the kind of thing that went down. And and of course, uh, when when Jimmy came back and tried playing these things, it was, he was under the gun, and it wasn't working out right. And we gave him a couple of days, and and they stopped it right there and and said, nope, that's it. We're bringing in Steve Smith. Let's let's give all of those demo tapes that you guys made for every song that we have decided to use on this record, send them to Steve, give them a week, and then we'll meet back here in a week. And that's exactly what happened. And how long did it take for Steve to nail down the tracks? Pretty fast. He came back about a week later or so. I can't remember exactly what the time frame was, but I'm thinking it was more around a, a, about a week because we, you know, we couldn't burn money at the studio. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so he came back and, he, you know, I had, I had met him before, but, uh, you know, this is the first time I've ever had a chance to play with Steve or any of us. And, uh, and Jimmy comes down for the first day. And I'm thinking, okay, this is really bad because Jimmy's really feeling hurt as he should be. And we're feeling bad about do, having to do this. And, uh, and then here he is and he's watching Steve set up. But Steve brings all of this, these sheet music things. So he's basically taking every song and he's written it out, all the parts that, and he, and he tells Jimmy, I've, I just want to tell you, Jimmy, I've been through the same thing that you've been before. It's tough because, but I came out of it a better player at the other, at the end of it. And he goes, and, and to your credit, I think that you were brilliant on these demo tapes. And so I wrote out your parts. 
I'm going to play your parts on this record. And so I thought that was such an amazing thing for a guy like that to do, a very gentleman that he is, and amazing guy, that he, uh, you know, he basically told Jimmy, you're the shit, man. I, you, you just had an, an issue with, you know, performing on this, you know, for whatever reasons, and uh, but I'm going to do your stuff. Hmm. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it your way, and uh, and then so Jimmy basically left as soon as we started to track. I, I don't think he could handle it. So yeah, uh, and yeah, and and then things changed pretty quickly because we did a couple of songs with him, and uh, and I thought that he was he was not doing what what I know that Steve Smith could do. I mean, he's playing great, but but I, I basically told him at one point, I go, Steve. I know you got your charts there. I know we played this song down like four times in a row. I think you got it. I understand that what you're trying to do and everything. I go, but I want you to feel free to do whatever you feel like you would do in this particular instance, you know, for your fills, for whatever it is that you want to do. I, I want you to be 100% relaxed and open to, to uh, you know, you know the parts. Now, just let, now let yourself go. And, uh, and, and he did, and, and he came up with some amazing stuff and it was, it was, it was, it was an interesting time. Hmm. Dave, my half hour is up. Do you mind going on for a couple of minutes? I, I completely. Yeah, yeah. We'll go, we can go on a bit okay. more. Yeah. Not, just a couple of questions more for you. Um, when the album was recorded and you handed it in, the pick Don't Be Afraid of the Dark as, as the single, which was written by outside songwriters. What was right. your, what was your choice for the first single? If you had been able to pick one. I think we were going with, um, let's see, what was it that we were thinking was going to be the single? We may have been thinking about doing Girl Crazy or um, uh, Surrender or, you know, I can't, Red Hot and Ready, I don't know. There there were so many different songs um, at that time that, that we were so happy with that, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I, it's almost hard for me to remember back because it was it was almost dictated to us that it was going to be "Don't Be Afraid of the Dark." Mm. Now, "Don't Don't Be Afraid of the Dark" was written by a, 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 a fellow that I had co-written "Contagious" with from the previous record, and and so he came back in and said, "Dave, I got a song for you guys. You know, I, I wrote it with another guy, but I think it's perfect for you. You know." And so I remember that, that that's how that song came in. Yeah. Um, how do you think the album was promoted? We're, we're, I think in Europe, I remember at the time, like being from Ireland, it was, it was pretty well promoted. I think over there, but I'm not sure about the U.S. Well, the U.S. it was it was absolute crap. Um, in fact, that's why we broke up after that record, and and because I I we had talked about this whole thing the band had, and and uh, I told the guys I said, you know, the the last four years of our career have really been tough because seemingly uh, there's so many people in the industry that are against us because we've been around so long. And and it's, it's actually working less in our favor by being around so long because they're kind of tired of us. You know, it's like when, when, when we try to push a, a track to be played on radio in the U.S., a lot of people are like, oh, these guys again. <laughs> and it's like, wow, really? Uh, you know, because of the way it was being promoted to, the, the, you know, the, the record company and everything like that. And, and we really feel disappointed by the way that they did 
the promotion for Contagious. And, you know, like I, like I said, that was because Guns N' Roses' new record came out. You know, first record came out, and, and they had, you know, an amazingly popular Whitesnake and, uh, and Aerosmith records that came out, and we got lost in the shuffle. So I was basically like, okay, 17 years into our career, we've been banging our heads against the wall with the wrong guys, you know, promoting us for so many years. We finally got a record company that understands our style of music. If these guys don't at least try to promote this record the best they can, then I think maybe we ought to just, you know, go in a different ways and do something else. And so we released Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which was probably one of the best videos we did because for the first time we finally do a mostly uh, performance video for that. Never gets played on MTV. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's maybe, you know, pushed on radio for about uh, three or four weeks in the States. And then, and then they, uh, they call our manager, Geffen Records, and says, we're not going to promote a second single. We're not going to do anything. Uh, in fact, we're, we're going to get you guys off the label. Wow. <laughs> so before we even left home to go on tour for that record, they'd already decided to give up on us. So, uh, it was, it, so that's when we just, you know, collected ourselves and said, All right, like we said, if, if these guys don't do something for us, it's time to go our separate ways. Let's do that. Mm, now what? So it was a it was it was a really strange thing to have two years to to put all our heart and soul into material, do this great record, and then within months after it, it comes out, we already are off the label. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's it. You know, it was just, it was like you talk about going ups and downs. Boy, that was a real tough time. Wow. Final question, Dave. When John Kalodner started the portrait label in the late 90s and he got Cinderella and Rat back together, did, did he call you at all? Uh, John attempted to do two different uh, bands with me because uh, he always liked to do these super groups, you know, where, you know, too. Where he, it's, it's, you know, he, he would put, you know, guys from different bands together to try to make, a, make something happen. And I think he, he was responsible for Damn Yankees, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and a few other bands. Anyway, uh, yes, as soon as we called it quits, he called me up and said, I want you and Peter Frampton to do, do, do a band together uh, because you guys are two lead singers, two lead guitar players, both from different styles of rock and roll, and I think that the two of you guys come up with something brilliant. And uh, at that time, I had just broken up with Lion T. Uh, we, we had gone our separate ways, and I was quite depressed and also at the same time trying to think of what I wanted to do next. And I wasn't ready to just jump into something. So, uh, I, I actually told, uh, John that I, I, I decided to pass on it. And then Peter Frampton calls me to talk to me about it and said, come on, man, you got to come down and at least jam with us. I think you'd be cool together, you know, and I should have done it, but I didn't. And it was a multi-million dollar deal that definitely was going to do. And, I just turned it down. Instead, I stayed at home, built a recording studio, and was broke as hell. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I financed the, the, the recording studio on 10 credit cards. That's, uh, that's, that's how much money I had at the time. Wow. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was, you know, I turned down a million-dollar deal and, and playing with Peter Frampton. So, and, then, and then a couple of months later, 
John calls me and says, I want you to work with this other guy, uh, which was the, the guitar player from 38 Special. And he wanted us to get together. And I said, that definitely doesn't sound right to me. I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> I, I refuse that one, too. And so John got pissed off at me and said, he doesn't want to play ball. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the end. That was the end for me and John. John. John said, "Never called me back after that." <laughs> okay, D- Dave. Favorite song from Ten? Do you have one? Ah, you know, I mean, that is one of my. By the way, I should just tell you right off the bat, it was. It's one of my favorite records from YT. Yeah, I think if you know, you know, at that time, I remember somebody saying. If you could just play, you know, grab grab a record for somebody that doesn't know anything about Y&T and, and, and give it to them, what would you give them? And, of course, I, of course, I could think of Black Tiger, Main Street, and all that kind of stuff. But at that time, I was like, hell, I'd give them 10. Because it's, it's, it's got a lot of what the band is all about. It's got, it's got the melody. It's got the great playing. It's got some of the heavy stuff in there. It's, it's got a lot of everything. And, uh, you know, it, it, and certainly... You know, the melodies of every one of those songs are easy to, to understand and, and get behind. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite records of, that, that we did as a band together. Um, okay, so let me see. Let me see. Let me see. I'm going to say um, Coming from the Rain is, is one of my favorites off of that record. And uh, not just because I wrote a song, just just because it was it was a very emotional song, and uh, and 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 when we finally got around to playing it this last year live, uh, it, it it was it was fun to play live as well. I'd say that was that was one of my favorites. Um, also, just uh, tough. <laughs> uh, maybe hard times and. Uh, and surrender, uh, and she's gone. Those are those are those are some of my faves. I think I think Ten Lovers is I love Ten Lovers. Very oh, different. Ten Lovers is fantastic. It's, it's, it's yeah, very it very different for you guys. Yes, and every time we played that song live, it got an amazing response at the end. Yeah, it's sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, at the at all the songs on the list, and I'm going, I'm going to say, yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> of course, Ten Lovers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dave, do you want to give out uh, all the social media sites where people can get in touch with the band and you know get some merch and all that good stuff? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's yntrocks uh, dot com is our is our website. Uh, then there's Facebook, it's ynt rocks. Uh, Twitter, it's ynt rocks, and you spell out the a the and a and b. Um, and and that's, that's that's basically it. And and of course we've got all the merchandise on our yntrocks dot com. Uh, website at, at our merch page, and uh, and and if you just click on click on store when you go to yntrocks.com and and all of our merch is there. We've got most of our CDs from our back catalog and uh, all the latest stuff that we've had out, and uh, we've got a new T-shirt design that's out there right now, which is sort of uh, based on this whole pandemic thing, which is basically a Y&T logo with spotlights on an empty stage <laughs> oh god <laughs> clever <laughs> well, oh dave because who knows when we're gonna play it yet. i know I, I know, know it, it, it may be this time next year before we can get back to the normalcy uh who knows could be even later than that yeah okay uh, but you know we all hope for the best well dave thanks for giving me some extra time it's uh it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you 
Absolutely. My end as well. Thanks okay. So much. All right, Dave. I'll see you on the road sometime. Oh, indeed. Cheers. All right. Take care. Bye. Yep, couldn't resist. Had to play myself a little bit of mean streak to ride this one out. But anyways, that is it for this week. And in fact, it's also it for November, if you can believe it. Yes, the uh, dumpster fire that is 2020 is almost over. So looking forward to uh, hopefully next year back to live venues, concerts, all that good stuff. So we'll see how that goes, right? But anyways, like I said, that's it for this week with our talk with Dave Manichetti. Big thanks to Dave for... uh, actually being able to give Richie a little more than the allotted 30 minutes to talk with him. And also, you know, because he's not out there promoting anything either. It's just like Richie said, got a hold of Jill. Jill set it up and a great talk with Dave talking all about the 10 album. Of course, we led into that interview with the song Surrender off of 10, in case you're wondering where the heck did that one come from? And of course, if you want to get yourself any of the Y&T catalog, your best place to go is yandtrocks.com. So uh, don't put the lamp or sand in there. It's yandtrocks.com. And they've got, you know, all the CDs up there, some of the... Uh, some of the newer stuff they put up is out there as well. It's the uh, Some of the acoustic stuff that Richie mentioned is up there, the rarities, and there's other merch up there. And, you know, like I said just a minute ago, as we kick in hopefully next year and get back to uh, live shows, I'm sure they're going to have all their live date schedule up there so you can go out and catch Y&T Live. Always a great show. So that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, As always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home. Peace,